What song or album was the soundtrack of your end of high school era? However you want to define that. Uh, if end of high school doesn't quite work for you, something that feels right for you, talk about that. Uh, talk to the person next to you and end up with a Bible on your lap. You've got two minutes. So, uh, so who's willing to come up and sing their song? Good. Uh, does, anybody, does anybody want to tell us what their song was? What their song or their album was? Um, I, I know we're sort of giving away our birthdays at this point, but... Uh, Right. What year was that? 78? Yeah, I know that album. Yeah, very good. Anybody else? Uh, sorry? Yeah. I know, I just couldn't hear. I have, I, I, do you know what that album is? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what year it was, but you don't have... Guys, I think, I think music, uh, it kind of defines eras for us. I think this is, um, the best thing about the movie Forrest Gump um, wasn't the script. It was the soundtrack. It's a good movie, but the soundtrack defined eras, didn't it? New song, you know where that song's from, it just it, it tells the story. Um, my end of high school era, um, I was friends with two guys, um, Ejo, who owned a Mitsubishi, 1983 Mitsubishi Colt with a big loud exhaust that made it sound like a bad V8. Um, he had a loud sound system in his car, and me and another Matt, um, the three of us, sort of went on adventures together and to parties and to, to hikes and that sort of thing. And in that car, we had three albums that were the soundtrack for that era for us, uh, Lives Throwing Copper, The Foo Fighters, The Colour and The Shape, and The Living End's first album, which is just self-titled. Um, and um, I don't know about you, does the music from your era that defines a period for you still make you feel happy when you listen to it? Does it make you remember stuff? Yeah. It's funny how music works, doesn't it? Um, I think music gives us lots of joy. Um, I think it can express joy, and it can also um, bring joy to us, can't it? It works both ways. It expresses joy, and it instills joy in us. It brings it out of us. Um, It's actually relevant to what we're talking about this morning. Uh, You have a look at the first bit there, chapter 5, verse 13. And it talks about the extremes of life and making sure you bring God into the extremes of life, basically. So it picks two ends of the spectrum. Is any one of you in trouble? So is bad stuff happening? Well, direct that towards God. Pray to God. Um, that, that hopefully becomes fairly naturally to you if you're a Christian person. God is your lo- loving Heavenly Father who is there ready to help you. The second thing it says, though, is don't neglect God when you're happy. Is anyone happy? Well, direct that to God too. Let them sing songs of praise. Uh, it's pretty easy to forget about God when life's going well, isn't it? Because life's going well and you're focusing on what's going well. Um, but what it's saying is, sing songs to God in that time. Now I have a problem there because the songs I like aren't directed to God. Like, the, Frankly, the lyrics on these albums are, are stupid, Like, especially the, the um, live album. It's kind of pseudo-spiritual nonsense. Um, you know, the Living Ends album's a rebellion album. It's just, you know, we don't need no one to tell us what to do. We're on our own. There's nothing you can do. Like, it's, it's, it's just nonsense. It's just fun music. Um, not exactly God-directed. Um, I think, actually, what it's saying is we need to have songs that we know the lyrics of that express joyful things to God for us. How many Christian songs do you know that you really like and that express really, really good things about what God's done for you and who he is? So that's what it's saying. It's saying... Have songs like that. Sing them to God. Be thankful to God. Because music isn't... Some things are so good, you can't just say them. You want to shout them because they're really good. And if they're really, really good, you want to sing them out. Like, 
So we're going to sing. I think this is what I aim to do with church music. It doesn't always work, and not all the songs are going to appeal to you. But frankly, if you hear the words, I'll see the world to come, for one has suffered in my place. Now there's grace awaiting me. Judgment's done. Atonement's made. The ransom is paid. No guilt remains. And now there's grace awaiting me. That is too good to just say. That's what music's about. So we've actually got to learn songs that express good things about who God is and what he's done for us and sing them joyfully to God. Turn our happy times into thanksgiving to God. That's what it's saying. Um, that's, that's a challenge um, because um, a lot of Christian music sucks um, <laughs> and uh, a lot of the Christian music that musically is very, very good has bad lyrics. And so there's a big challenge there because I want to have songs that say things that are really wonderful, that have wonderful truths in them, but I also want them to say, do it in a musical form that expresses it really well and powerfully. And that's a really high bar. Um, I think a starting point is to try and learn some of our church songs. I'm trying to achieve that with church music. It's a high bar. Um, it's worth investigating uh, Christian bands and the things looking for, uh, music that appeals to you, is that it needs to have two things going for it. It needs to have lyrics that express wonderful truths about God and what he's done for us. Wonderful truths. They can't be songs you just get away with the lyrics. It has to be positively wonderful and good. Um, and it needs to be the music that's really good because otherwise you won't be happy with it. You'll be listening to it go, oh, you know, songs like that. Um, so both matter. It has to be good music, has to be good lyrics, and we, it's a good way of expressing joy to God. Um, here's why it matters, though, because uh, he goes on to talk about bad times. And I actually think the process of giving thanks to God in good times trains us to trust God when times get hard and when times get really bad. So we have a look at uh, a bit where you might have heard the reading today and going, well, what on earth was that about? It hasn't really been something I've thought about before, maybe. Um, seems like a strange passage. Um, it's a difficult passage. Um, a lot of parts of the Bible um, have little bits that are difficult to understand what they're talking about. Uh, this passage has lots of bits that are difficult to understand. Uh, in fact, um, from verse 14 to 20, there are difficult details in every single verse. Um, I'll just highlight to you the main bit we're going to look at. This is, this is the main bit we're going to focus our time on today because it's really important. Um, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. And anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, it's worth acknowledging there's, there's different parts of the Bible. Some parts of the Bible people just make rubbish off because they don't believe in God, right? Other parts of the Bible people have honest disagreements about, people who believe in God and take the Bible really seriously. And this is a part of the Bible like that. I just want you to be aware there's a lot of views out there. I think the view I'm going to teach you today is the right one. But I just want you to be aware of this. Here's the bits that are disputed. Um, all of those words, and there's a bunch of ideas as well that you can't sort of highlight. Um, let me just go through um, why this is difficult. So you go through, it says, is anyone among you sick? Um, sick could mean spiritual, could mean physical, kind of. It's pretty clear it's physical sickness. Um, anointing with oil, call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil. And we say, well, what's that practice about? What's it supposed to communicate? That's a good question. Um, in the name of the Lord, there's lots of views about that. Um, and the prayer... I don't know why I use that word for prayer, but it's a funky word. It doesn't matter. Um, offered in faith. A lot of people say this, this prayer is a special kind of faith. Um, we'll make the sick person well. 
two things there. Sick person. Are they physically sick or are they spiritually sick? People argue both ways. Um, the word well there, um, literally it says, uh, they've, they've translated it a certain way. It will, uh, it will heal them. It will make them well. Literally it's the word. It will save them. And so the translator of the NIV has made a choice about what sense they mean, save. It said it will, make them, it will heal them on the spot. It will make them well. And so that's significant. It says, if they've sinned, why does he use the word if? That's, uh, anyway, uh, they will be forgiven. <laughs> Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And he uses the literal word there for healed, but uh, seems to be a metaphor, a lot of discussion about that. And so I just want to say, there's three ways this passage is difficult today. The first one is, it's like intellectually, grammatically difficult reading the Greek. It's, it's, there's some challenges. I don't think they're insurmountable. Um, but I want you to be aware of that, because you'll hear other views out there. Um, and often from people I respect. I disagree with a lot of people in this passage whose view I respect, because they're a Bible-believing person, and they're trying to understand what the Bible says. Um, it's theologically difficult. It raises some issues that I relate to other major teachings of Christianity that uh, can be challenging to work through, but I think mainly it's experientially difficult in a bunch of ways. Um, If you've been a Christian for a while, I think you probably know uh, Christianity doesn't have much place for rituals. There isn't magic in Christianity. And so people might sort of, with that kind of suspicion, read this and go, what's this about? It kind of sounds like that and feel just a bit uncomfortable. It isn't that, but we come to it feeling a bit uncomfortable. What's this oil anointing thing that's supposed to heal people? And if you've been exposed at all to some of the really bad end of what comes under the title faith healer, uh, you might be pretty wary of it. I've seen some people very, very damaged and broken by so-called faith healers doing things in the name of Jesus that have been profoundly damaging for them. Um, But it's also, uh, at an experiential level, this is where flesh and blood comes in. Um, Two years ago, a friend of mine got cancer. Um, Her name's Kat. Uh, She was 32 at the time. She had a one-year-old daughter. And she was actually married to one of my best friends, uh, one of the guys that was part of that Mitsubishi cult adventure crew. Um, She was a sincere Christian believer, and she and her husband faced that very difficult time with very firm trust in God and in his promises, and we all prayed for them. Uh, When it was clear the cancer treatments weren't working, uh, a few of us decided to call a prayer meeting, and so we did. And right in the middle of the prayer meeting, uh, myself and some other people who were elders in her church or in her ministries anointed her with oil, laid hands on her, and prayed that she would be healed. Verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. I've never seen a room with so much faith in it than that prayer meeting. She died a few months later. And so that's the kind of experience we need to bring to this passage and ask hard questions, isn't it? I actually haven't thought about this passage since that happened a couple of years ago. God chose not to heal her, but the passage seems so plain, so, so, so straightforward. God will heal her. Isn't that what it says? So today, friends, I want us to work through the details of what this passage says. I think it's actually a really good passage. I think it's got a lot of comfort. I think it's got a lot of help to teach us. Um, so I want us to engage with it really carefully. I'm going to work through some of the details here. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Here's some of the big questions we're going to have to work through, um, and I'll I'll sort of go through them one by one. Um, First one, people will ask, uh, so it says, uh, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is it physically sick, or are they sort of spiritually sick? Because there's a lot of spiritual sickness in the book of James, right? If you've read the book, 
you'll see he talks about it a lot. Um, actually, it is talking about a physical sickness. It's talking about a person who's unwell. In fact, I think it's talking about a person who's very, very unwell. I think they're, they're, on, their, they're on their deathbed. You see, if you were sick in the first century, significantly, uh, it meant death was a real possibility for you. Uh, it just was a very different world. And besides which, this person's already praying. It says, is any one of you in trouble? Let them pray. So the Christian person is already praying. But now it's escalated in this passage. And it says, is any of you sick? Is it going really badly? Call the elders. It's, been, it's escalated to a high level, do you see? So I think it sounds like it's very serious. It's been escalated at the top level. They're definitely sick and they're probably dying. Is it sickness resulting from specific sins? Uh, this is a really strange point, uh, if you haven't heard it before. A lot of sickness, I don't know a lot, at least some sickness is a direct result of sin. A direct result of sin. It's the outworking of being in bad standing with God. So 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, uh, it's talking about how people have been treating, Christian people have been treating each other very sinfully, and then it says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Some people are dying in Corinth because of sin. It's directly resulting in sickness. They're under judgment because of their sin. And so quite possibly, sometimes at least, um, sin is a res- uh, sickness is the result of sin, but it's not straightforward. We mustn't make a straightforward line going, this person's sick, therefore they did this sin. If you read John 9, it kind of warns against making that direct connection. You usually can't know. And most sickness is just a result of the fact that we share a fall in Adam, that we all sin, that we're under the curse of death, and sickness comes with that. However, James wants these people to know, because there's sin among them, that if you're getting sick, you need to entertain this possibility. And that's why in, in verse 15, the assurance he gives right at the end there, he says, if they have sinned in a way that's resulted in this sickness, is the implication, they will be forgiven. It gives them assurance. You're sick, if it's because of sin, you will be forgiven. Do you see how that's working? And he, he isn't saying it is because of sin, he's saying it might be though. It's possible, it's very possible. And friends, the application here, it, it might be strange if you haven't thought about it before, but if you are undergoing ongoing suffering in your life and you're persisting in sin at the t- same time, then we need to do ourselves a favour and interpret that as most likely God telling us to stop sinning, <laughs> to repent. Now, I don't want to say if you're sinning, uh, sorry, if you're suffering, you must be sinning, because it doesn't work as straightforwardly as that. You see, you see, you need to be careful there. We all need to stop sinning either way. It catches up with us in the end. But sickness can result from specific sins. Now, moving on. Um, verse 15 says, uh, they'll be healed, they'll be made well. Uh, literally, the word there is saved. I mentioned it before. So verse 15, what it literally says, have a look at it there in your Bible. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise them up. That's literally what it says. It's actually exactly the same word as appears in verse 19. Uh, It says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, so verse 20, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death. Exactly the same word. Um, Why is the NIV translated it that way? Uh, They're more competent translators than I am, let me say. It's a good Bible. Don't let me undermine it for you. But they have to make decisions to interpret it so English readers can read it straightforwardly. And in this case, I think they've actually translated it in a a way that's unhelpful because the word literally is save. And I think James has been very, very careful in using that word, as we'll get to a bit later. 
So it could mean saved from their present illness, possibly, or it could mean saved from God's judgment at the end of history. They're both perfectly valid readings of the word save. And I think it's been ambiguous on purpose because he would have used the word heal if he wanted to. In fact, he uses the word heal in the next sentence, the literal word for heal in verse 16. But he's used the word save here for a reason, and we'll get to that a bit later in the sermon. Um, Going to make you think... (laughs) Whose faith and prayers are involved in the thing, in what's going on in verse 15? Listen to what it says. Um, the elders have gone and anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord, and it says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Whose prayer and whose faith? It's the elders. It's not the sick person whose prayer and faith are making them well, who are saving them. It's the elders who have gone. Now, that sounds a bit strange, because Christianity 101, right? When people trust in Jesus for themselves, they are promised eternal life. They're promised forgiveness. They're promised that they will be raised up from death on the last day. It's about trusting for yourself. It's really important. But here the elders are trusting for the person. It's a bit strange. It's actually wonderful. Um, I just want to clarify two things immediately, though. See, the sick person in the passage is a Christian. This is a practice for insiders, right? People who are Christians do it this way. Call the elders of your church. Um, The second thing I wanted to say is they're already praying for themselves because the verse beforehand is anyone of you in trouble, pray. So they're already praying. And verse 16, everybody in the church is already praying for them. But there's a special thing happening with the elders in verse 15. The further step that's necessary is they're sent for the church leaders who most likely represent the whole church community being there and the faith and prayers of the elders become the key to God helping the person in need. And it says, because of the faithful prayers of the elders, this person is promised that they will be saved, that they will be raised, and that they will be forgiven. There's assurance, and it's because of the elders, not because of them. Now, if you know the teaching of the the story of Jesus healing the paralytic that came through the roof, you might observe some similarities here. Um, Once uh, Jesus was teaching in a house, it's really crowded, some guys came carrying their friend on a mat, um, they couldn't get in, and so they were, you know, fairly industrious. They go up on the roof, they made a hole, and kind of dropped their friend onto Jesus' uh, head, I take it, <laughs> basically. He's, you know, he's on Jesus' lap, and Jesus looks up and sees their faith. He doesn't see the faith of the man in front of him. He sees the faith of the friends who carried their friend to Jesus. And so he says to the guy on the floor, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to heal him. And so you've got all these similarities going on. It's the faith of the friends. Your sins are forgiven and they're healed. The point is, friends, you are not alone in the Christian life, especially when times get hard. There can come a day of personal difficulty and illness and weakness, both physically and spiritually, and depression, basically when our own spiritual resources fail us. And on that day, it's up to others in the church community to say, You know what? You can't pray, but we'll pray for you. You can't trust right now. You're having trouble trusting, but that's okay. We're trusting God with you, and we're trusting God for you. You see how wonderful that is? It's the faith of the elders who are by their side, ensuring this person's right with God, praying for them, trusting for them. Now, anointed with oil... uh, Well, it's not special oil. You've got it in your cupboard, most likely. It's olive oil. So you can do this, or, you know, technically. It's a symbolic action. It's not a magic trick. 
It's a symbolic action, so it's supposed to mean something to people. What's it mean? Well, it could mean a bunch of things. Here's the simple version. Um, Does anybody know what the word Christ means, as in Jesus Christ? Sorry? Anointed one. It means the person is the king of Israel, and the way they show that is by anointing them with oil. So when King David was appointed to be King David, uh, Samuel the prophet came and dripped oil on his head. Now, why is this Christian person being anointed with oil? Very simply, it is a way of saying, listen, Christian, you belong to Jesus. You can rightly expect to receive his blessings and everything King Jesus has. You will have a share in them. I think it's pretty powerful when times are hard. We don't often have symbolic actions. We, we, we talk more. We don't have symbolic actions very much, but it's a symbolic action. It's very powerful and it's very, very precious. So they anoint him with oil, saying, you belong to Jesus. We're, we're committing you to him. Um, the last one I want to have here, it's got three points. A lot of people read it, and, and, and this is where it comes into real difficulty. They qualify what it says. Let me read verse, verse 15, and it sounds so absolute. It says, the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. There's no conditions there. It doesn't, it doesn't kind of say, um, you know, if, if they, it's like, it's, there's no if and buts. It's just this will happen. So people have tried to qualify in a bunch of ways. Um, because it sounds like, well, in my experience at least, it doesn't always happen, does it? They don't always get healed. And so here's a bunch of ways people have tried to qualify it. And all of them are good, good reasons because they come from the Bible, but they're from other passages and not this situation. So some people would say, well, clearly the elders have a special gift of healing in this circumstance. God gives those gifts to people as he chooses. Or perhaps the elders have a special word of knowledge from God, specifically that, go there, this person will be saved today, go and do it. But the problem is the passage doesn't say that. So it's a good reason, but it's, it's, it's not what this passage is about. Or again, you need to have a special prayer of faith. Now we're looking at the passage because it does say something like that. The prayer offered in faith will, make the sick per- will save the sick person. Um, and there are special prayers of faith, special faith from God that this will happen in this situation in other passages. But it's not what this one's about because James has already talked about faith endlessly. Faith is wholehearted commitment to God and his promises and not trying to have it both ways, not trying to live the world's way and God's way. It's trying to say, I'm on board with Jesus and I'm not going for alternatives. That's what, that's what faith is in James. And it's what faith is in James with prayer. You can't be double-minded with prayer. You have to have faith, faith prayer. Back in chapter 4, it says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. They're double-minded. They're asking faithlessly, in bad faith. Uh, That's what the prayer of faith's about in in chapter 5. He's saying, ask with faith in Jesus. Don't have kind of wanting it both ways, wanting bad reasons, thinking you can pursue another religion if this doesn't work, and that kind of thing. It's pure devotion to Jesus. And that's the point of Elijah, the example that was given in verse 17. Have a look at verse 17 with me. See, if it was a special prayer of faith that only some people have, that it would be very strange to, to say this. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He was like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and didn't rain in the land for three and a half years, as we read. And so the point is, Elijah's an ordinary guy like us, and he prayed and it was powerful. So it would be very strange to say that there's actually something that we don't have. Sorry. So... It's, it's not a special prayer of faith. Uh, here's the most common one people use, though. 
uh, and it's another good reason. It's probably the best reason, but it's still wrong for this passage. Appealing to God's sovereignty. Uh, so people read the passage as basically saying, and the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person if it's God's will. Again, I've just got to say, does the text say that? <laughs> See, I believe in the sovereignty of God firmly. I believe all our days are numbered and we'll die in God's timing. I firmly believe that. But that's not what this passage is about. Earlier in the book's about that. Have a look at the passage we had last week from Stuart, um, chapter 4, verse 13. It's very important to see life under God's sovereignty. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. See, it's a true idea and it's in the book, right? But it's not what this passage is about. This passage doesn't qualify with God's sovereignty. It says God is using his sovereignty to save, to raise, to forgive. It's a promise. The prayer offered in faith by the elders will save the sick person. The Lord will raise them up. And if they sin, they will be forgiven. It's a 100% ironclad promise that we shouldn't qualify. So you're like, well, you haven't given yourself much room to move here. Uh, Here's the key question. When does it happen? And if you're thinking you know where I'm going now, you probably don't. uh, Because it's more complicated than you might think. Well, it's slightly different than you might think at least. I think we'll be able to understand it. Um, See, what I've got on the timeline there is how history is broken up in the Bible. On the... um, the left-hand side, you've got the present evil age in which sin, death, sickness rule. It's the age we live in. And within which, though, God is calling people to himself through the preaching of the Lord Jesus and forgiveness in his name. And all who believe in Jesus are looking forward to a better future, the kingdom of God, the age to come over here, where sin, sickness, disease will be gone forever. Death will be dead in the kingdom of God. And so a lot of people have taken this teaching, which is very fundamental to the Bible, and tried to locate when will will they be saved, when will they be raised, when will they be forgiven. And there's two views of that. Uh, Before I get into them, because this is where you understand the passage, both of the views I'm about to tell you are wrong. (laughs) Or to say it better, both of the views that I'm about to tell you are half right. You actually have to have both. So the first view says, when are you saved? When are you raised? When are you forgiven? Well, you can use the saved and raised words two ways. You can be saved from illness right now. You can be raised from your your deathbed right now. And that's what it seems to be promising. Um, It gets one thing right. The passage is talking about sickness and it is asking for for physical healing in the passage. However, it doesn't fit with the details. Because you see, saved, raised, forgiven aren't present tense verbs their future. See, if I say, um, I am running, I'm talking about what I'm doing right now. If I say, I will run, I'm actually not talking about what I'm doing right now, I'm talking about the future. Saved, raised, forgiven, they're all future. Now, one way of reading that could be the immediate future. It could be, it'll happen tomorrow, it could be, it'll happen next week. It could be distant future, it could be in the kingdom of God. It's the future though, it's not saying it'll happen in the here and now. But that would make forgiven very, very strange. Do you really want to pray, to pray for somebody and say, well, you will be forgiven in, in, in the future, not right now. That's Christianity always teaches that forgiveness happens right on the spot when we confess our sins and we trust in Jesus. So that seems a little strange. So it's right in some ways, but too simplistic. 
Um, some people, again, too simplistic, they look at saved, raised, forgiven and just go, those are gospel words. It's so obvious, isn't it? If I say to you, God promises that you'll be saved from death, that you'll be raised from the dead, and that you'll be forgiven all your sins, what do you think of if you're a Christian? You think, well, yeah, in the kingdom of God, that's what I'm hoping for. That's, that, they're the big promises of God. And so over and over again, the Bible says those things, and James has decided to use key gospel words for what's going on here. So the strength of this view is it gets us to wait for the future and it directs our attention to the future kingdom of God, which again is what the passage is about. And it links it to Elisha's example, because did you listen to the reading today? It's a really strange story. You read um, the description in James and it says, he prayed earnestly for it to rain and it rained. And you think, okay, so he prayed and it happened straight away. Read the story, it didn't happen straight away. Uh, What happened was, he's on the mountain, he prays, he says to the servant, go to the top of the mountain and look out to see, see if it's going to start raining. The servant goes up the mountain, comes down, says, there's, there's nothing in the sky. Elijah says, okay, go check again. And he gets down and prays again. The servant goes up, now getting puffed out, comes down the mountain, says, there's nothing happening out at sea. That happens seven times. They're there for hours. <laughs> Elijah is waiting for God to answer. So it's that forward-looking thing in the healing, that, that, that kind of thing is going on. But this view doesn't work either. Because if it's just purely future, he's chosen a pretty weird way to say it. Because he could have just said it very straightforwardly. Friends, here's what the passage is saying. You can actually have it both ways. He's used the ambiguity to his advantage. What's going on in the passage is he's saying, the elders are to ask for physical deliverance for this sick person in the immediate future, if they want it. But they're going to have to do it in a way that draws their attention to the certain promises God has made about their eternal future. See, it says, if you're healed and raised from your bed in the immediate future, praise God, but I can assure you that you will be raised, that you will be saved, you will be forgiven for all the wrong you've ever done, and you will be in the kingdom of God. So you've got to hold the two things together. It's really important. Now, you might think, if it's just about the future, why is this practice even important? I think it's immensely precious. Let me, let me just tell you a scenario, and I think you just see immediately why it's precious. Um, I want you to imagine a Christian person in our church who's really unwell, and they're in hospital, and death is a very near and real possibility at that point, and they wish they could feel confident, but they just don't. They feel scared. And frankly, unless we, you and I have been in that moment, which I haven't, who knows how you'll respond? how you'll feel in that moment. Maybe I haven't trusted Jesus adequately, they tell themselves. The reality of their salvation is just tearing at them and they don't feel confident anymore, particularly if they feel like they're in bad standing with other people or with God at that particular time. Who knows how they're feeling about it? As the questions keep coming, am I really right with God? Does my sickness show that God's angry with me? Do I really have enough faith in Jesus? Now, as a pastor, the last thing in the world that I want them to focus on is the amount of faith they have. I want them to focus on Jesus. So we take the focus off them. The elders of the church come into that situation. They say, you know what? We're believing in Jesus with you and we're believing in Jesus for you. And we're praying Jesus, we're praying with you and for you. And the spiritual exertion of that whole situation is taken off them and given to other people. Because now it's not about their faith anymore. It's about the elders' faith for them, on their behalf. And so they anoint them with oil and say, listen, you belong to Jesus. 
I'm telling you, you belong to Jesus. And they hear the wonderful promises of God. You will be saved. You will be raised. And you will be forgiven. And so the elders pray for healing. Maybe God will answer that prayer for healing and then, then and there. But that is a person who knows where they're going. And so we pray for healing. And we do it in a way that points to the certain promises we have for the future. Those wonderful promises. You will be saved. You will be raised. You will be forgiven. And gosh, that is a precious practice in that, conte- in that context, isn't it? Take your spiritual exertion off them and give it to another. Another situation. Think of somebody who's got chronic illness. It just won't go away. They've been praying for years and years. It won't go away. And the answers are just not what they would have them be. And they get to a point where they think they're still trusting God, but they just can't pray anymore. They don't believe God's interested in helping them. They're really struggling and they're struggling and they're weary with holding on. And it's at that point that the church should come along, in its elders particularly, and say, you know what, we'll believe for you. We'll eagerly pray for your healing on your behalf. And doing it in such a way that points to the certainty we have for the future that begs God for healing in the present and draws their attention to Jesus. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's why it's really valuable. And it's a pity I've spent all my time just on that bit because the point of the passage is we're supposed to apply that everywhere. Have a look at verse 16. It takes that situation as kind of the model about how we relate to everybody in church. It says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed, that you all may be healed. And it's using healing as a metaphor then for everything. The whole book is talked over and over again about you guys sin, you guys have broken relationships, you need healing in every way from God. And so confess your sins to each other, pray for each other for those things to happen. So the real basic applications are, when was the last time you confessed to another person in our church sins you've committed and how you plan to fix them? When was the last time you prayed with another Christian about these kinds of real-life messes that we cause? Because those are normal, healthy church practices. And then at the bottom of the passage, it says, particularly, this is the grand conclusion of the book of James, particularly look out for those who once named the name of Jesus and now, because of sin, seem to be slipping off wandering away watch out for them try to bring them back pray for them because if you can do that you'll save them from spiritual death eternal death and that's what really matters that's the main deal now here's four application points just as we finish um the passage says relate to god through all circumstances from trouble to happiness remembering the introduction good uh deal with spiritual issues first sin Broken relationships, wandering from the faith, those kinds of things are the biggest deal. And they're the first things we should be worried about because physical healing is a distant second compared to how important those are. It can be very important, but those are most important. Third thing we want to say is let your elders serve you in prayer and anointing with oil. If you ever experience life the way we've talked about today, Stuart and I would consider it a great privilege to serve you by coming to you and anointing with you with oil and praying for God to heal you and particularly drawing you to your assurance that you have your eternal future. That would be our great privilege. So use it. It's not silly. It's actually a wonderful gift from God, that particular practice. Um, The last one I want to say is, ask for healing in the present, and again, be assured of salvation in the future. Ask for healing in the present. It's not undermining that. Ask for healing in the present, if that's what you want. But it's always mostly about the kingdom of God and what God certainly promises us. And that's the book of James. Well, not today. 
how about we thank God for his, um, his gift and pray we deal with these situations well. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have a sure and certain eternal future in him. Thank you for the great promises of the gospel that we will be saved, that we will be raised from the dead, and that we will be forgiven. Thank you so much for the privilege of being able to uh, serve one another in prayer and help one another along in the Christian life. And we really want to beg you today that uh, when people among our number are really in that dark place, that we would be there to help them, that we'd have eyes to see and we'd be able to help them. Friends, I just want to leave you an opportunity to pray personally now for any, any relationships or any people you'd like to pray for who need healing in whatever form. Um, please bring that before God now.